You're listening to Sarah Hagen backstage with interviews and insights from years inside the music industry. Join Sarah as she talks with masters of their crafts, finding out what makes them tick both inside and outside of the music business. Welcome to Sarah Hagen Backstage. My guest today, Demian Ariaga, has just come off of one of the gigs of a lifetime, playing the New Year's Eve show with Miley Cyrus and Dolly Parton. So we will talk a lot about that today, but we will also hear about his start in music, his transition from being a drum set player to also being a hand percussionist, and how that opened up a whole new world of gigs for him. We'll also talk about how he made his way into the world of pop music with major gigs with acts such as the Jonas Brothers, Iggy Azalea, Carly Rae Jepsen, and of course, pop star, rock star, Miley Cyrus. So come along with me as I catch up with Demi and Ariaga. Demi and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. This is such an amazing privilege and opportunity. I'm humbled that I get to do this and I'm so thankful to you for for allowing me to be here and to reconnect all these years later basically 12 well now 13 years later so oh my god thank you right. thank you for having me yes of course and I know it's so funny thinking back you know uh, all that time ago um where you're in touch through email when yeah. I was working at Zildjian and then um you had mentioned Nam, and it's so funny thinking about Nam because it was, you know, Nam was like such a staple every year. You, we would probably be like gearing up for Nam right now because right, it's exactly. January, um, and Nam was always like mid to late January, so that would be the the thing. And then everyone gets to see each other and all of that. And you know, I hope it comes back like that. I know I did go to Nam over the summer. I don't know if you if you were there. I I was um, not there. No. Yeah, and it was, you know, the 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 drum area just wasn't the same. A lot of the companies weren't there. Um and it will be in April this year, 2023. So, I'm not sure if I'll be there or not, but I'm hoping more companies come back this year. Yeah, it's it's, it's an interesting time, you know, everything that's been going on and you know, the costs of of making it all the way out there, the the all the reps and hotels and food and, you know, yeah. it's tough and I also take breaks like on purpose from Nam. I don't like to go every single year mm-hmm. um, because it's not as fun, you know, if it's just the same thing all the time. And I always get the Nam Thrax thing. I always get I sick know. and my feet <laughs> hurt a lot and I'm older and then, like my back hurts. Right. Um, so I, tr- I tend to go one day. Uh, and I also yeah. live far from from Anaheim. I live sort of like in North LA ish, so mm-hmm. it takes me a while to get down there. But it's obviously always worth it, and it's it's one of those things that I never ever take for granted. You know, not being from the United States and you know finally moving to LA and then going to that first Nam. It's just like mind blowing, um, and you know you get starstruck from not only the drummers and guitar players and people you admire, but the reps that you find. And you're like, oh my God, that's Sarah from Zildjian or this from that or like Chad from Vader and like, oh my God. And it's really, really cool. And I always value it. But at the same time for my mental (laughs) stability, I can't go every year. um, Because it's just, it's too much. It drives me crazy. I I can understand that a hundred percent. But you know who is there every single year? And including last year in, you know, summer, the NAM that was in the summer, Stevie Wonder. 
every year. Yes. Yes. Right. I have uh, almost bumped into him, but I've seen him <laughs> four or five times at least, and it's it's yes. it's incredible the the just this aura. Yeah. And, you know, that's one of the things that I definitely love about Nam I, among the many. By the way, I love Nam. I love yes, I'm zero yeah. against Nam. I love Nam. Uh, it's just sensory overload. And it's, it I, my, my heart can only take so much, you know, at the yeah. same time of seeing Dave Mustaine walk by and then seeing, you know, I don't know, like Steve Smith and then yeah. Cindy Blackman yeah. b- walks behind me and then Michelle and Diego Cello or something. It's, it's too much. I um, understand. 100%. But I, I love how. They're just all these legends are walking around like, you know, being as normal as they are and should be and mm-hmm. treated normally. But every so often, you know, and you can feel this sort of superhuman other level of musician and the respect they get. And, and you almost kind of feel like there's an energy coming and there's yes. something that I feel this force field. And then you turn around or you might hear some some noise or like some people talking and then you turn around it, it is Stevie Wonder yes. um, or people like that. So it's absolutely insane. Yeah. It's great. With like an entourage, right? Like yes. the, <laughs> it's yeah, just yeah, amazing. Yeah. It's um I just a quick aside, but I remember my first Nam show and I I mean it was probably 2000 like 7 or 2008 something like that. Um and we used to do these really big signing sessions, artist signings, but it wasn't just like a couple artists there. There were, there were tables lined up along the side of the entire booth. And there are probably like 35 major artists sitting there signing autographs yeah, and the yeah. line for this, you know, I'm sure you were there. Oh, I remember it, 2008 right? was my first name. Yeah. Yes. yes. Yeah. And it, where the line would just wrap around the booth and down the halls. And um, so this, this one year I'm like, Oh my goodness. I, seen pictures and I've heard all about it and I've organized it even, but I've never seen it before. So the tables are lined up and there's like Travis Barker and Steve Gadd and, you know, like major, major, major artists, Vinnie Colyuta, all lined up on these tables. And I remember someone saying, okay, Sarah, stand here and make sure no one like gets through the barrier. And I'm like, have you seen me? Like, yeah, what am I going to, yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm tough, like, but that's, you know, that's, that's my, I'm security today, apparently. But, right. Um, it was, you know, oh my gosh, those were the days. Those that, were the, right. That's like, amazing. I remember that in, in, you know, one of the, t- the, the tricky things for me with Nam is the sort of balancing the super mega fan that I am of a lot mm-hmm. of these men and women that I admire and respect. And also they're my colleagues and my peers, which is a mind confusing, confusing thing, you know, because right. uh, I, right. you know, I grew up two of my favorites with Nick Menza, uh, may he rest in peace and, and Pat Torpy also may he rest, rest in peace. Like in my mind, if you were to tell me like, oh, you're going to Nam and you're, they're going to be around and you're supposed to, you're, you're now this drummer in LA trying to find your way, you know, and you're supposed to see them as your peers and your colleagues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'll be like, no, dude, I, I want to just like kiss their hands and feet. Are you kidding yeah. me? They recorded Rust in Peace and lean into it. And like, so there's this part of, of, of having to navigate that mentally and emotionally mm-hmm. that is always a, a, a very draining thing for me whenever I go to, to Nam. It, it's, it's like I need to f- psych myself into knowing like, okay, there's a, a way, not necessarily that I have to behave mm-hmm. as far as like, 
betraying who I am and what I would love to do, you know, because every time sort of like one of my life philosophies is to always tell people that you love them and you admire them and respect them, especially when they're alive. Um, And I used to do these drum tribute things. I'll I'll talk about that later. But I've learned a lot through that, through through passing of of people that I care about or, or musicians that I love. So I always see Nam as this opportunity to tell people that I admire them and I respect them in a very sort of vulnerable situation. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, it's very tricky for me because it's like, wait, you know, I'm supposed to treat them as my equal. And then I'm like, no, first of all, we're not equal. Second of all, if I start believing that I'm at their level, it goes completely against this sort of reality. First of all, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's not really the most humble thing to think about and your ego gets involved. Um, So it's very, it's, Again, it's beautiful. I love Nam, but it's also I also enjoy that that sort of juxtaposition of feelings and things that I feel like I should do or how to behave and all these other things. So it's an interesting time. Yes, I I understand that. I really, really do. I mean, I, I find myself um, similarly, you know, being friends with people that I was that I was influenced by as a young drummer um, and you know, not that they are my peers or any, or any of that, but we're friends on a whole other level. We're like family, you know what I mean? Like, but I still pinch myself sometimes when I am in touch with someone or have a phone call with someone. And I think, did that just happen? You know, like, that's just, that is crazy to me. Um, But in the moment, I remind myself that, you know, we're all human and in this like little microcosm that we're in, like this drum and percussion world, there's such a camaraderie and a family atmosphere. I always say family, but it really is like this, this family atmosphere. And when you do have those conversations or you're in touch with someone like that, it's always amazing to me to see that there's so, everyone is so humble. You know, it's been a very, very rare occasion where I've met somebody who wasn't humble about it, you know, and that's just amazing to me. And I think, um, you know, it kind of that, that feeling kind of gets passed down in most cases. Yeah. I, and, and also when you, when we, we, I'll include myself, when we aren't humble or we have certain outlooks, let's just say, or opinions, or we, we behave in a certain way, it gets around really quick. And, you know, you have stories. I have stories of people that you're like, wow, this person did this or, that guy behaves this way or so and so forth. So, you know, although it is a a beautiful community, it's also a good opportunity for for us to kind of see that as a microcosm as far as networking and how to behave and how to be professional and then expanding to, you know, music, being a professional musician in general. Um, Absolutely. And that's a piece of like really good advice too, is like, this is a very small industry. So make sure you're a good person, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that that is always a, such an interesting point because whenever it's like saying like, hey, we have you you have to be humble. It's like, well, if you're saying it, it sounds kind of weird. It's like or when right. people say like, you know, you have to, you know, you know, like uh, in drum, drummer speak, every drummer w- w- says, right, you got to play the song. You got to play yeah. what you get. But not everybody does it. The yeah. reality is that a very, very few percent or percentage of people that say it actually do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I find it very interesting the, the saying like you have to be a good person because it's like, you know, you're patting yourself. You got to be like me, a good person because I'm right. a good person, you know. Uh, 
<laughs> um, which obviously is not 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 the case all the time. Um, but it, it's just a it's a wonderful community, and I have had the most magical and privileged journey through my t teachers I had grown up mm -hmm. um, or music that influenced me, teachers at Berkeley that I had a phenomenal relationship with prior to Berkeley as being fans and then during Berkeley that have taught me uh, so much that have single-handedly shaped who I am as a, as a, a drummer and percussionist. Uh, Eggy Castrillo, Dave Desenso, Mike Mangini, these are three human beings that I owe so much of who I am as a musician, I would have to do five podcasts for each person. Um, <laughs> and and I just love them dearly. And then throughout my career afterwards, I've had mentors and I've had people that have um, sort of always looked out for me. I never had to deal with that um, sort of negativity or real competition, you know, nemesis type of, of, of a, a person in my life. So I've been very fortunate in, in, and I think it's somewhat typical of drumming, like you're saying, where, where I know that it's not the same in other sort of instrumentalists, uh, worlds, you know, mm -hmm. so I'm very grateful to be part of this community. And, and I have to say how much I respect what you're doing in bringing us all together as much as possible, putting out this content, uh, for the older generation, um, and also the newer, newer drummers out there that are just making waves and is amazing. So I want to applaud you and make sure that you know, uh, and I'm sure I speak for thousands of people, how grateful uh, we all are for, for what you're doing because it just keeps it propelling forward. And more than that, it also makes us look inward and exercise gratitude and all these things um, inspired by, by the questions you ask and the, the type of guests you have. So thank you oh. for that, for sure. You're welcome. Thank you so much for saying that. That means everything to me. And, uh, you know, this this podcast, I, I always say I started it in the pandemic to um, keep everyone in touch with each other, you know, and like and also introduce uh, people to each other and, and their histories and everything, because we know each other from our, you know, our public persona. But what's behind that? And I want to get into your history, of course. But I also I have to mention right off um the bat the the show that you just did with Miley yes. Cyrus we yeah. have to talk about that i was blown away um so we're talking about the new year's eve show with Miley and Dolly Parton yeah and you gave me a heads up saying you just wait just wait until new year's <laughs> eve um no secrets were given away but right i was so floored by especially especially the the um them singing wrecking ball together and then into i will always love you it was so beautiful yeah it was i mean i the, the last year or so was insane for many reasons and i'm sure we'll get to that um but it yeah. started with the new year's eve show last year and and thinking that there's nothing that could t top that and then fast forward to this year where we got to play, like you're mentioning, with Dolly Parton. And Dolly is a is a is a person that it reminds me of of what we what I said about or we we felt with Stevie Wonder. Mm -hmm. What what I, what I'll say about Dolly is that aside from her aura, you know how you hug people um, that wear cologne or perfume, and then they leave and they kind of linger, or sometimes it's like too much and it's like it's it's very strong and yeah. you don't like that smell. 
Yes. Dolly's smell like preceded her. Like Aww. you're just sitting there at rehearsal, kind of waiting for for you know us to play, obviously. And you you know you hear like you know five minutes till till they walk or whatever, and you know two minutes you start smelling something and feeling like this vibe, and you look in front of you and there's nobody around you and there's no Dolly or whatever, and then you just you kind of turn around, you kind of sense this this energy. And you smell something really nice, and it's yeah. Dolly Parton. It's this magical entity, you know, yeah. that it, it's just magnificent. And you know, like I always say, working with with Miley has been the the privilege of my career. She is absolutely stellar in every which way imaginable. Humble, hardworking, the attention to detail she she uh, she pays. Uh, the smartest person in the room when she walks in is aware of everything and, and I admire her. And as a feminist and somebody that, that admires women and, and has had a, an amazing support of, of females in, in my life, um, she is just badass and I love her energy and, and what she's about and I love her music. So to get be able to play with, with her and Dolly was magical. Um, of course, playing with David Byrne, you know, sometimes we have, and I know this has happened to you, we have like a bucket list and, and, and things that we work toward. Mm -hmm. And when those dreams come true, it's almost like, well, I kind of worked for this and, and I expected this to happen in, in a way or I kind of visualize it. And then right. there's this collateral sort of goals and dreams that happen or things that come about that you didn't even think about in not in a million years. Have I ever thought that it would be possible to play with David Byrne? With Miley, for example, I, I visualized that and I thought, well, at some point I'll get to a level where maybe I can play with, with an artist like Miley or would love to play with Miley. So mm -hmm. I thought about that in a way. David Byrne, not in a million years. Not necessarily in like I'm not worthy type of a, a situation, but it sure. was so far like removed from reality. Like why the hell would I ever be in a situation to play with David Byrne? Right. And then to play, you know, Let's Dance by David Bowie um, and what that song means to me from a percussion standpoint, um, it, it was talk about sensory overload. That was some, you know, intense stuff that I had to sort of do visualization exercises so that when I was at the moment, I was executing and doing a job. Uh, and I learned a lot of that from, from Mangini and, um, you know, also sort of let go the ego of, of, oh, wow, I'm here with, you know, playing in front of millions of people, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Maybe I can do something, you know, to show off or whatever the normal thing that, that we, we think about. So it was an amazing opportunity, humble to be a part of it. And, and um, I, I will say that uh, probably my favorite part of the show was watching this band Lily perform. Mm -hmm. And Lily, out of the four members, three were my students at School of Rock. Uh, no. Back then, it was in Hollywood, yeah, and, and then eventually moved to Burbank. So, Max, the drummer, who is one of the, you know, probably the drummer I have seen play live the most in my life. Um, Sam, the guitar player, uh, Dylan, the, the singer, and Charlie, the bass player, who I didn't teach, but those three kids uh, that are now, you know, in their twenties, grown yeah. men. Um, that was a, a super personal, you know, highlight career-wise and emotionally and, and as a teacher, um, it was amazing to see them. So selfishly, that was, you know, it, does, it didn't mean that I play with, you know, 
or it, of course it matters that I play with with these people. Uh, mm -hmm. But to see them, I was just so you know beyond proud, and, and um, that was my personal highlight. I do have to say that. Um, That's but, amazing. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'm very That's like very proud. Full of circle, right? You're 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 playing a dream gig while you're seeing your students like succeed. Yeah, and it was insane. And 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 obviously, I was just one of many teachers that they have had in that school system mm -hmm. or, or in their lives in general. So I'm very, very proud of that. And, and it was really cool. And it was magical. Like I said, David Byrne and Sia and, and Paris Hilton, which was completely out of the box and who I have to say was so awesome at rehearsals and so good. Like she could sing, sing, and it was really cool. And it was awesome to be part of this sort of like this viral moments um, mm -hmm. that will live on the internet for a long time, obviously in a very minuscule, tiny way, way in the back playing, you know, a tambourine no. and stuff. So, no, that's, but, that's amazing though. And, and I mean, your role is incredibly important. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's just incredible. I love the story about Dolly's kind of like aura preceding her. Um, yeah, it was amazing. She, amazing. I am obsessed with Dolly Parton, honestly, like she, you know, the, all of the things that she's done, uh, her funding, you know, yeah. the vaccine and her um, reading program for kids. Like there's Amazing. so many things about her that people just don't even know. And um, besides being an amazing musician, you know, she's yeah. just. And imagine the things that she doesn't tell us about. Right. You know, the things that she funds, the donations she makes. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised, you know, years from now when we find out like we did with George Michael, that he would donate so much money and would work at, you know, grocery shops and would do X, Y or Z for thousands of people. Right. Um, so it's again, like with the David Byrne thing, I never in a million years thought like, why would I ever be playing uh, with Dolly Parton? And it happened. And I'm just so, you know, Dolly isn't and was never a part of my culture, musical or uh, sort of like uh, pop culture. You know, she mm -hmm. was a, a personality, an American personality that was respected and loved by everybody. And I obviously I knew who she was and sure. respected her music. Um, but it, I don't think it has hit or I haven't realized, like I understand, you know, the, the, this idea of, of Dolly and what she means to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, but it doesn't really, ha it hasn't hit yet. We're like, wow, I did that. Or I was able to play, you know, with her. Um, mm -hmm. and, but I respect the, the, the feeling and, and we'll see when it eventually hits, I'm probably going to have a breakdown and be like, Oh my God, I did that. Um, so it was pretty that. cool. Yeah. Well, I had a little bit of a breakdown crying when they did that medley. Cause it you was did. So, oh my God. It was so sweet. <laughs> uh, it, it was beautiful. <laughs> it was beautiful. And, you know, at the at the end of Wrecking Ball, um, I believe Miley was supposed to say, I will always want you. Um, but then Dolly took that last line and said, I will always love you. And that segue and then just uh, it was it was insane. And I, uh, that's one of the things that I wanted. I couldn't say because obviously it would have ruined a surprise. Yes. Um, but it was so it meant a lot to a lot of people and you, we see that online and comments that I've gotten from people and it, it's just beautiful to be a part of that. And again, it's a very humbling experience and uh, I'll cherish it for, for a very, very, very long time. 
Yes, absolutely. And you should. And and before we kind of go back in time and talk about your history too, um, tell us about the last year playing with Miley. And I know you mentioned um, how her business sense, right? And how she's the smartest person in the room. And I get that impression just watching her, uh, you know, transition from child star to really like rock star. She really is yeah. a rock star, right? Yeah. Oh, full, full fledged. Um, you know, it's, I have been, and that's when you and I connected, I was, I've been involved in sort of the pop world mm-hmm. for a long, longish time, right? I, I started playing when I first moved to LA, I wanted to do the rock thing uh, as a drummer. I play both drums and percussion and mm-hmm. I wanted to do the rock drumming thing. And I was touring with Richie Kotzen, a guitar player that I grew up admiring and, and just idolizing. And I then got offered to play with the Jonas Brothers, percussion for the Jonas Brothers. So I entered that pop world. And as soon as I, you know, back then I was, um, I, my math is horrible. I was like in my 20s, mid-20s or something. And I, and I... That was in part, I had no idea what Hannah Montana was. I had no idea who the Jonas Brothers were, really, um, Mm -hmm. other than this Disney thing. I was watching other things, listening to other things. I was too busy trying to learn, relearn Dream Theater songs. Um, So I was in another sort of, you know, mindset, mind frame. Mm -hmm. And then I started sort of discovering through the playing with the brothers and playing with uh, sharing shows with Demi Lovato and people like that later on with Victoria Justice. How much this music and these artists truly mean to so many people. And I had heard about Miley, of course, and throughout my time, sort of up until recently, there are only good things that you hear about Miley as a band leader, as a singer, as a a businesswoman, as a human being. There are only good things that you hear about Miley's band that you heard, like... Stacy Jones, how he plays drums and how he, you know, how he, uh, how as an MD, and you would hear about Jamie on guitar and Mike on on keys, um, and how he she has had the same band or a lot of the same guys for years on years, and you know Paul Hager, uh, uh, I don't know if you know Paul Hager, um, front of house engineer, incredible, he's from mm-hmm. from Massachusetts as well, mm-hmm. um, a dear friend of mine, and, and so it's like this, you hear this and. And you hear this respect from other musicians. You would, and I would hear randomly interviews from people like I don't know G E Smith, G. E. Smith that went uh, from from SNL, yeah. and they would ask him like, you know, who are some people that you know, some of the guests that admire that that impress you the most? And he would say like Miley, and other people would say like, no, she's the real deal, or like Elton John, or whoever. And I got to experience that, and I was never apprehensive because none of the feedback and none of the sort of rumors and rumblings I would have had. None of the intel suggested otherwise. It was all like, she's the real deal. She's the real deal. And when I got to meet her and work with her, it was that. And, and you know, we did last year, um, or last year's New Year's Eve show. Shortly thereafter, we did a show at the Staples, now the Crypto Center, but Staples Center with Green Day. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, she recorded that. Um, and it's, it's a live album that's, that's available on, on everywhere. Um, and then we did a bunch of Lollapalooza shows, headlined all the Lollapalooza shows in South America. We did, um, we did, uh, Argentina, 
Chile. Then we played in Colombia and we all almost died on a plane that got hit by lightning on our way oh, to Paraguay. No. Yeah. That's a whole different story. Holy um, moly. Yeah, I it was, that. yeah, we were on a flight um, and there was a horrible rainstorm and our flight um, got hit by lightning and we had to emergency land basically in the middle of nowhere in Paraguay. And eventually we made it out and went to Brazil instead a few days later. And then we played the show there. Um, but that was like amazing, right? So I had had this, um, and I'm taking a slight detour for, for a reason. That's okay. Yes, so, absolutely. By the way, this all comes from me finishing sort of a, a tour that I did with the Jonas Brothers in 20, uh, in last or two years ago in 20, um, 2021, where I wasn't sure what my future would be involved with them. I wanted something different. I wanted something more challenging musically. I wanted something just different. So, but I was very confused and I didn't know what the hell would happen. And then this landed on my lap, so to speak. So now fast forward to, um, you know, the Lollapalooza, Lollapalooza shows. Everything was amazing. We did a couple of private shows here and there. Um, and I was having like the best year of my career. It was amazing. Then we did a show um, with Steven Tyler that, that Miley couldn't make it. And we ended up playing with Jesse J. It was amazing playing Dream On and playing Walk This Way, you know, with Steven Tyler, him asking me to hit the cowbell louder and like asking me to get a gong and Kirsten had to send me a gong. <laughs> Insane. And then after that, I did some stuff with um, I subbed on drums for Carly Rae Jepsen playing at Coachella, which was amazing. So there are, you know, there's all this momentum and all these amazing things. And then everything goes quiet. Things get canceled, shows get postponed, and basically from May of of last year till August that I did a, a thing through uh, in in Portugal and a couple of things. So all this to say that basically since the highlight and the greatest year of my life professionally from May till three weeks ago, basically was I did two gigs basically or maybe one gig. It was the the of course, there are other things going on musically for me, mm -hmm. but as far as gigs, it was the complete opposite of what the first year, uh, the first half of the year was. So, you know, all this to say that a lot of people can can have this vision or idea of like, oh, you're with Miley, you're with so and so, you're just like nonstop working and you tour and you travel and do all these things, and that could be true for a short period of time. And mm -hmm. then you can also not have gigs and not and, you know, look at your phone and be like, well, should I text so and so for a gig? Uh, you right. know, I'm looking for this or I'm looking for that. And it's tricky because, you know, you get to a point where you people assume that you're too busy and they don't mm -hmm. call you for other gigs. Right. They assume that you why would you ever play with them if you're already playing with a a level, you know, celebrity or, or musician? Like, why would you sort of downgrade, so to speak? Also, they assume that you would charge them way too much money or they assume that you just wouldn't play for very little money. Mm -hmm. So you, I, I wouldn't go as far as saying this as a double-edged sword, but it's like a very interesting dynamic where you it, – it's hard to navigate sometimes the this idea of, wow, I just did this and living through this or dying on the hill of you're only as good as your last gig, but then like, okay, well, my last gig was, you know, I played at Coachella and well, if 
you're not getting anything right now. So why, what's happening? Am I not really that good? Should I call this? Is it worth waiting for X, Y, or Z artists to do their gigs? Or should I be taking, you know, lower paying jobs, but are better uh, as far as consistency? Do I mm -hmm. want to, you know, it, it's, it's hard. I mean, I was at a point recently with a, with a, an artist that I, I'm, I'm not going to disclose who it was, but um, they offered me, they asked me to play drums on this festival in Mexico. And I was super excited because they wanted me to play drums. And I'm like, wow, cool. I haven't done a, a big show playing drums in a long time. This would be really good. It's the kind of music that I don't really ever play. And the artist is pretty well known in, in that sort of world. And when I saw what they offered to pay me, part of me is like, well, I haven't played drums in a while. This will be really cool. I'll go to Mexico. I'll see a bunch of friends. I'll play in this festival. And, um, you know, I'll be able to post and show, you know, all this, the, the brands that I rep, that I'm active. I'll show my followers that I also play drums and try to be relevant as a drummer, blah, 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 blah. And also, on the other hand, the amount of work and the little pay that they offer was so low and insulting, really, mm -hmm. that I had to make this decision of like, well, hold on a second. I'm not making any money right now, but that would be good. But like, am I desperate? enough to take it or i don't know if desperate is the right word but like should i take it and right. you know in the back of your head it's like we always hear about how musicians we have to fight for ourselves and you know fight for what it's right and right not, no not worse and yeah exactly not concede certain things so i i decided to not take the gig and um it was hard at the same time because it's like wow man i really wanted to play drums and do the thing but it's like mm -hmm. you know for 10 days of work or eight days of work, what they were offering was not only was it lower than anything I've done in the, you know, past 10 years, it was the lowest. It was the equivalent of what I would have played at an, any venue here in Los Angeles when I first moved or when I was playing, you know, Johnny D's in Boston Sure. Or when I was playing yeah. at, you know, any venue in, in like at the Hyatt Hotel in Boston, they were paying me twice as much that what wow. they were offering me on this professional, you know, touring gig uh, or, or you know, major label with a, an artist that has millions upon millions of plays on, on, on Spotify. So mm -hmm. it, it was tricky because I'm like, well, man, imagine what, what, what a um, privileged position you are in. So many drummers that would die to be in your position and, and how are you going to say no to this? And you know how, but there's the reality of life and, and cost of living and, and mm -hmm. priorities that we have and, and, and um, things that we need to c take care of household situations, plans for the yeah. future and so on. So it, it, it's, it's been a very interesting, intense year where not necessarily the playing with Miley is the only thing that I've learned that is um, sort of worth documenting and, and worth sharing. Because mm -hmm. a lot of the times the sort of downtime is what a lot of musicians sort of need to hear that it's normal. First of all, it's normal. Right. And I welcome the rest as well, because in my mind, it's like, well, hopefully this year will be so damn busy that the rest that I got in the last four or five months, I'm not going to have this year or it's going right. to be precious, you know, going forward. So take yeah. it as one day at a time, as cliche as that sounds, but um, it, it's the only thing that I can do to sort of remain sane and, and op obviously optimistic always, you know? 
Yes. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really, really good uh, point and a piece of advice um, to put out there too, because I do think that you're right. People see like, oh, he's got this gig and it must be, you know, he's constantly working and all of that. And in reality, like there's a lot of time that you're thinking like, should I be doing something right? Should I be making a different decision? Um, And it's tough to kind of like sit back a minute and wait for things to happen. And especially when like, you know, Miley in particular, she does a lot of other things. Like there are, you know, a lot of things going on. And, and so it's, it's not constantly like touring and and playing gigs, but, um, but I'm really, really happy though, that you, that you did have that time and that perspective. And then I think like what I'm hearing from a lot of drummers is that time has made the touring life that much more precious like instead of instead of dreading (laughs) or or thinking like oh i'm gonna be in a bus and like or whatever that kind of thing it's like okay you know i'm really ready to get back to that i needed that break it was nonstop for so many people for so many years yeah um and then and then it puts things in perspective and makes you really kind of appreciate that life and it also makes you appreciate the time that you do have that's downtime or at home or you know, spending it with family and friends and that kind of thing. Yeah, um, ab- absolutely. And one thing that I'll say, though, uh, just so people kind of follow along, is that if I were to only play drums, I would probably try to get m- way more gigs as a drummer, right? Mm-hmm. Like actively try and call and go to auditions and do the thing. As a percussionist, however, it, it, I might have prefaced this wrong, but as a percussionist, I am among the first people that get called off or not used, right? So gotcha. I've learned that through the years because it's not a bass player in his rig or a guitar player in their Kemper or an amp or whatever. You're mm-hmm. talking about two congas, timbales, chimes, five cymbal stands, a percussion table, bongos, you know, djembe, if you need floor toms, an SPDS pat, you're talking about potentially 12, 15, 20 inputs for some people. Mm-hmm. That is a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I understand when are like, yeah, they're not going to use percussion. They're not going to use percussion. And at some point, it I, I stopped taking it personal. Mm-hmm. At one point in my life, it was like, is it me? Do they not want me and my music? Am I not doing it right? Am I not, uh, you know, being musical enough and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, it's just a matter of like, maybe they, just, they don't have enough inputs. Maybe they just don't want, you know, to carry all that stuff or they don't want to spend X amount of thousands of dollars to take your gear or, you know, rent from SIR in New York City, up, you know, X amount of money when they mm-hmm. just like it's on track, whatever they don't use it. Do we really need a live shaker player on this particular song, you know, at SNL or whatever? Like maybe not. So right. I've learned to, to deal with that. Um, so from a drummer, a, a drummer, I still get butt hurt, I would guess. Yeah. <laughs> but a, 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 for percussionist, for me to like live uh, and be sane, I don't take it personal. It's like, well, you know, right. probably like I would probably do the same if I was a band leader and I was like, oof, dude, the percussion guy with two dude two congas and you know yeah. oh man I'll just, I'll just do the yes pds pat you know right um, right yeah that that is a good point too so just kind of throwing it out there because it's 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 always it's 
although it can be applicable to many musicians, I think this this particular thing of, of the not working and not being on demand um, applies more to the percussion side. And also mm -hmm. part of the tricky thing to navigate or that I have uh, that I sort of not struggle with because it's something one of my favorite things in the world is the am I a drummer? Am I a percussionist? You know, right. and there are not a lot of people that do both. Um, so I try to do both, not f for me to feel fulfilled on either or, but I, I always like proving or showing people that you can do both mm -hmm. and that you probably should do both because you will be able, to, you'll, you'll duplicate the, 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 the probabilities of you working and being active and being called to do X or Y or Z or the recording or, you know, Mm -hmm. So I see drums as percussion as a one thing. Yes. Um, and, and thankfully, my musical background, I love thrash metal and I love salsa music just the same. Yes. Um, and and uh, I attribute a lot of that growing up in Venezuela, of course. But I, I always stress just as a, as a matter of... of, of not only being a professional, but just like being a fulfilled musician, you got to learn other stuff. You got to learn other mu instruments. Mm -hmm. um, and, and if you don't want to learn harmonic instruments or melodic instruments, stretch out and play, learn how to properly play and get some good sounds, decent sounds on congas and bongos and cajon and how to hold a shaker and how to play a tambourine. And if you do that, you can do a lot of more gigs that maybe you don't want to do the coffee shop gig playing cajon and you're like, oh, I hate playing cajon. But if it's a matter of paying your phone bill that month or not doing it, especially if you're just new to it in a city or a scene or you just moved to a different country or whatever, um, I definitely encourage people to, to try to do both because um, also from a technical standpoint, yes, I've done a lot of percussion. I know how to play the salsa stuff and all, all this. I'm not a, a studious musicologist that I know every beat from Brazil and every beat from Haiti and every beat from Ghana and every beat from I, – I know very little in the big scheme of things, I know very, very, very little. Um, and I just try to, you know, do what, not only what the song deserves or is just what the, what the song has recorded, mm -hmm. first of all, and also what the music director and the artist or the artist tell me. Right. I, I have no ego whatsoever. If you want me to hit a conga with a closed hanger and that's the sound that you want, I'm sorry to all my Cuban friends, all my Venezuelan friends, all my Puerto Rican friends and all that. That's exactly what I'm going to do. Right, um, right. Obviously, depending on the artist and, and I'm being For facetious, sure, yeah. but, you know. Um, but anyway, but I just wanted to throw that out there. Yes, no, I think that's great. And I do want to talk about you growing up in Venezuela as well, because um, you just mentioned that it had an influence on your, your you know, music choices, right? So let us know about that. Like, and, and you were there up until high school time about. Yeah. So I was born and raised in, in Caracas, uh, to a, a family of, um, very open-minded music people and musician, uh, music lovers. My dad played a lot of percussion. So I always had congas and bongos around the house, but he wasn't a like conguero or a bongo player, um, like a professional when he just did it for fun. Um, and, my mom would always have like salsa music around the house and we i grew up listening to bowie and beatles and stones and from a very young age i loved 
you know, Beavis and Butthead and Bill and Ted's and, uh, you know, Bill and Ted. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was obsessed with MTV and all the hair metal bands and Headbangers would, Ball. Headbangers Ball, religious. And we had MTV in Venezuela and I was obsessed. It started becoming obsessed sort of with American rock culture. Mm-hmm. And I then started falling in love with thrash metal, with Megadeth and Metallica. Mm-hmm. Um, became obsessed, but my parents would always buy me records or show me salsa music or merengue music or anything and everything was always welcome in my house. Uh, gangster rap when I lived in Boston, nothing was ever. This is not music or that's not you know proper. Nothing. They would allow me to listen to anything with any lyric. Um, Iron Maiden records, uh, songs by Megadeth that talked about like Satan, Satanist rituals. My parents were like, fine, like just know that that's not real or that this is. So it was very open minded. And then uh, when I got to seventh grade, basically I moved to Boston uh, because my sister had got my older sister, my only sister, she got accepted to Suffolk University in Boston. So we all moved as a family to kind of help her get settled and yeah so when i got to 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 boston it was like a dream come true just walking around i didn't have to wear a school uniform i can wear whatever i wanted Mm -hmm. um and i would skateboard around brookline and walk to fenway park and do that whole thing it was like living in an episode of like saved by the bell or something like that (laughs) it was just like the greatest thing ever and when i went to high school i discovered hardcore punk music especially straight edge hardcore music Mm -hmm. that just blew my mind bands like h2o youth of today minor threat Uh, well they're not uh, minor threat is not from new york um but anyway just or i should have said new york hardcore or new york straight but anyhow just hardcore music crow mags that desenso played in just kind Mm -hmm. of full circle stuff um just all that music was just mind-blowing to me just like crappy recording but I love the message. I love the positivity and I embrace a sort of straight edge lifestyle. And I just thought it was amazing coming from listening to really negative music. Um, the, the impact that that, uh, that genre had on me was, was huge. So that's when I started playing in punk bands and I had a punk band in Boston and we would play misfits covers and it, it was amazing. It just felt like, wow, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. But I was a very much a soccer fanatic, and I still am. And when I went back to Venezuela for junior and, sen- junior and senior years of high school, I had to start sort of choosing where I was going to do for, my, for the rest of my life. And in, back then in Venezuela, music was never an option other than audio engineering. And there was nothing less appealing in my life than knowing what a compressor did or what signal to noise ratio was or what the knobs in a freaking console. Were. I had no, zero interest whatsoever. Yes. I, I thought it was stupid back then. I was like, this is the worst thing. This is music. What? What about freaking playing the actual instrument? What are you talking about? So it was never an option. And back then I had started like partying and drinking and um you know, hanging out with friends and girls and the whole thing. And I was like, oh, I will guess I'll stay. This is like the normal progression. All my friends are staying here. This is what I'll do. So I started, I went to college. I did sociology there for, for a, a few months, 
because that's kind of what my a student counselor told me that I should do and blah, blah, blah. And I kind of let people sort of dictate what I what I should do. And it's not like I had a passion for music or like, this is my calling. This is what I want to do. I just really liked it. And I was oh, pretty good at it. And mm-hmm. I was never in bands in Venezuela. That only happened for a year in Boston. I, mm-hmm. I was never in bands. I was only literally working on Megadeth songs, Mr. Big songs and Dream Theater songs over and over and over. Eventually, when I discovered Mangini, I tried to play some of this, his stuff with Steve Vai and other mm-hmm. musicians. And that was it. That was like my relations to music, relationship to music. So I quit, high, I quit um, college and through the support of my parents and i um they were like look if you're gonna do music it has to be berkeley give it a shot and wow. we had not only had my sister gone to suffolk university but my dad went to mit my uh grandfather went to bu so boston higher education in boston it's intrinsically linked to my family so it was like okay, if I'm going to go to college, it's going to be in Boston and then I'll figure out what music Mm -hmm. is what I want. So I'll try that. I did not get accepted at Berkeley because I did not have any knowledge on music theory. So I had to study on my own for about six months and reapplied. And then I also never didn't get in. And then eventually they did allow me to, (laughs) uh, they accepted me at at Berkeley. Wow. And yeah, it was a, it was a little bit of a fight, but I, I learned a lot and I had to sort of um, study or learn music theory because I knew nothing. Mm-hmm. And when I got to, to Berkeley, basically the first week or so, I quit drumming because of the the ridiculous drummers that were at that school at the time. <laughs> I we're was talking going to-, to ask you because I think I think we're around the same age, and and I'm just I was trying to think of who was at Berkeley at that time. So as far as drummers that were there pre. And adjacent, not exactly the times I was there, but like maybe a year after I got there. But you were mm-hmm. talking about Hiromi, Esperanza Spalding, St. Mm-hmm. Vincent, who I, I played with at Berkeley a bunch, mm-hmm. um, or who is now St. Vincent, Annie Clark. Uh, but the drummers were Nikki Glaspy, Justin Rains, Dana Hawkins, Jordan Pearlson, and Tony Escapa, two of my favorite drummers of all time, mm-hmm. let alone from Berkeley. Um, who else? Uh, Thomas Pridgen. Yeah, uh, Kendrick Scott. Wow. Um, I mean, it's just absurd. And, and I, I went to John Epcar. Um, it's it just r- stupid. And I went home and I was like, I can't do this. So I, qu- I literally quit drumming and I changed my major to hand percussion. Wow, and because I had I had been self taught, I had learned played congas and, and timbales here and there with some friends, and also at a, like school in Venezuela, like band for for a Christmas period for a couple mm-hmm. of years, um, and I was like, you know what, I love percussion. I already know enough drums that I can sort of teach myself, and I know what to what to get better at, and I know I could take labs and I can take private instruction. So I'll do that. I'll keep that in the back burner. Excuse me, but I'm just going to learn something new. So I I I sort of bet and gambled in the I'm going to play percussion so maybe in the future I can do hand percussion and and, and uh, elevate the probabilities of being hired basically right. and I met Eggy Castrillo who taught me basically everything I know alongside Jamie Haddad um, Mika Rinquist Ernesto Diaz um, it was an amazing a, a, a magical time at, at, at a school um, and then 
later on in my time there, I made I met Dave Desenso, who changed was the yin, and then Mangini was the yang, and it was just those two. Like I've said, drum wise, I've learned so much from them too, and also musically in general. Like I don't, rem I honestly, Sarah, I don't remember many actual technical things that Dave taught me or that Mangini taught me. I, 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 what I, what I remember about them is so profound and so life changing um, that they left a massive imprint in, in my career. Mangini, for example, with the idea of visualization, visual motor behavior rehearsal um, and being aware and being on top of everything that I'm doing and also how to chart songs was mm -hmm. something that to this day I apply and I owe him, you know, one of the reasons I do get called is because I know transitions in between songs and I, you know, I, I know song form as a drummer, a percussion player, uh, not in a jazz sense, but in a sort of pop rock world. And with Dave, the breathing, the counting, the subdivision, the, the motivic development, the looseness, the flow, the breathing, the the trying to connect your brain to your mouth and your emotions, and they're just that. That's when I then knew that I wanted to do this for a living. Like even through Berkeley, I wasn't positive that that is what I wanted to do, and I. I studied so much of the Latin percussion in left foot clave and congas and bongos and timbales and with Jamie frame drums and all this other stuff. And then I was able to sort of keep watering those plants of rock and metal and, and pop and uh, all that sensibility. And I was very confused as to who I was as a musician. Which am I? Am I the, the conga player? But I wear Dream Theater shirts and people kind of I'm not too embraced in the hand percussion hang. And then mm -hmm. as a drummer, people think like, you're a drummer? Like, no, you're a percussion player that plays drums. So it wasn't like a drummer guy. Mm -hmm. And that kind of stretched after I graduated. When I graduated, I um, I didn't know what I wanted to do or how I wanted to do things. Um, and I had the opportunity to audition for this uh, very well-known Latin band or Latin jazz band in, in, in Boston that I knew a lot of people that played in the band, a former teacher played there. So I was like, oh, dude, I got this, you know. So they asked me to audition and I show up and I sucked. I didn't learn the songs properly. I didn't know how to improvise within a certain, you know, thing or certain parameters and blah, 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 blah. It was terrible. And I went home and I didn't know what to do. I called my parents crying and I was like, shit, I just graduated from Berkeley. I've taken lessons from DeCenso, Mangini, Jamie Haddad, blah, blah, blah. I've gone to Mike Stern clinics and Pat Metheny and Michelle mm -hmm. Degocello and you name it. I've, I, I've spent, I owe thousands upon thousands of dollars and what do I do? What, you know, what the hell? Um, so I called Eggy Castrillo and um, he said like, hey, I, I want to introduce you to some friends at a, at a gig. You want to come do it? And I ne actually need a tech. Can you come set up my stuff? And then I was like... How am I going to go set up? You know, I just went to Berkeley. Why am I going to be a roadie? Like, this makes no right. sense. I, you know, I'm, the, you know, don't you know that I can do left foot clave, you know? <laughs> and um, I went and he introduced me to this guy named Leo Malaise from Boston, uh, from uh, the North End. And mm -hmm. um, he starts telling me about his background, blah, blah, blah. And, and uh, he asked me to come by his studio. 
a few days later. And not, he didn't offer me any money. He just said, hey, there's an artist and I need somebody to rehearse with. And I was like, sure, you know, what, whatever, I'll do it. What, what, what? I can't lose, you know, at Why that not? point. Yeah. Why not? After yeah. graduating and blah, 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 and I failed my first audition, like, what the hell is going on? Like, I have to do this. And mind you, I had said that I loved, you know, uh, hair metal growing up, and I was obsessed with many bands, including Extreme from Boston. Yep. So I show up to the studio, Sanctum Sound in Boston, in South Boston, in South Boston, uh, not South Boston, in uh, South End, excuse me. Mm -hmm. And... Leo opens the door. He's like, hey, man, I got to make a couple of phone calls. Just go set up and, you know, we'll play soon. So I go to this room and I set up my stuff, congas, bongos, cajon, blah, 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 all the clicky, clacky things. And I'm sitting there and the door opens and I look up and it's Gary Sharon, the singer of Extreme, who, by the way, more than words, was my favorite song of all time and still is my favorite song, Pornography, which is right there. It's my first oh, yeah. album ever. Yeah. The first CD that I would steal my sis from my sister. And Sharon shows up and he's like, oh, dude, you're the percussionist we're working with. He saw my stuff and I couldn't believe it. Oh I God. was in awe. I was shocked. I, and I was like, oh, yeah, nice to meet you. I'm Demi. And he's like, oh, yeah, I'm Gary, whatever. And Leo walks in with his guitar and we're like, hey, man, you know, uh, Gary has a solo EP coming out and we have a couple of shows. We're looking for a percussion player to kind of, you know, groove with us. Um, you want to try something? I said, yeah, absolutely. He's like, well, this song's called More Than Words. Do you know it? And I was like, yeah, I'm pretty, <laughs> you know. And mind you, a quick break, uh, parentheses. One of the things that I did at Berkeley on my own and somewhat helped through or inspired by Jamie, but Jamie had that, but like on my own, I would take songs that had no percussion and I would add stuff to it just mm -hmm. to practice that dynamic and visualizing and feeling how I would feel when people would ask me to do it and options and so on and so forth. And I had done it ad nauseum to um, more than words. And there I was in a room playing my favorite song of all time with my one of my favorite singers of all time. Uh, and that changed my life. Wow. That moment is when I was like, this is what I want to do. Because even with the gigs from Berkeley or after Berkeley or playing at jazz clubs or Latin jazz, and I had a duo with a Japanese piano player called Yuki, um, uh, small Yuki. Um, it was a thing. And I was like, well, I guess this is what I have to do because this is kind of what I'm good at. I'm Latino. I'm doing this kind of music. But my heart was always in the rock world or pop world. That's what I wanted to do. And that first professional gig, being with my favorite singer, it just changed my life and changed my psyche. And it proved to me at that moment, like anything can come true, like yeah. anything from yeah. that point forward. Like, so why the hell not? Right. So I moved to L.A. And I was like, I'll just move to L.A. and see what happens. And um, I moved January 29th of 2007 with like four thousand dollars to my name. And I spent it all in first, second, and last of an apartment. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I then started working at School of Rock. And it, I was able to get employed and make some a little bit of money teaching. And then eventually I met Richie Kotzen and so on and so forth. And sort of fast forward to till now. But um, I don't know if I, uh, either answered your question or answered yes. it too long, but no, you, yeah. that, that was great. That was, yeah. that was really, really fantastic. I definitely wanted to hear. Yeah. I wanted to hear like how this all came about for you because you had told me that, you know, you kind of like 
decided not to go the drum set route at Berkeley and, you know, to get into the hand percussion. Um, and I, I just thought that was such a smart choice. Like it was, and it ended up really benefiting you in the yeah. long run with having all the, all of these options. Um, fueled by kind of fear, like, by the way, fueled by, and sorry to interrupt, but fuel yeah. fueled by sheer panic, self-doubt and, and, I embraced quitting like it's a warm blanket in winter. I was like, yep, screw this, man. I'm out. <laughs> but but yeah. having people in your corner like like Eggy, you know, ha having him just say, okay, you know, he, I'm sure he sensed the despair that you were feeling in that moment. I, sure. Called him, sure. Right? And knew what you needed. And he's the kind of guy who makes those things happen. Yeah. I just... You know, I love him so much. I love him dearly, him, his family, and uh, not only as a human being, but also as a musician. Like, his mm -hmm. playing is some of the tastiest and things that I, I still try to emulate. Um, yeah. Same with, you know, Mangini, DeCenso, and, and Jamie, and, and stuff like that. So, um, yeah. they're and wonderful then, people. And then, uh, yeah, absolutely. And then to, to make your way to L.A. And, and do the whole School of Rock thing, and then end up, you know, the getting into the whole pop scene um and i'm just thinking like you you mentioned earlier how you were like in your 20s touring with the jonas brothers that must have been a crazy experience yeah, yeah. Like, you know the the pandemonium that kind of like uh followed them around and and really still does yeah it, it was amazing it's times that i will cherish for forever and like i said when you when you play with an artist who means so much to so many people and you're you're the difference between it for example jonas brothers to like a, a megadeth or or a, mm -hmm. a band that i adore you know whatever the jonas brothers had a massive impact on people especially girls that were at, of a certain age that were discovering a lot of themselves their um sexuality to to a degree or mm -hmm. how they love you know crushes that they had and who they are mm -hmm. as a person i'm a kevin guy i'm a you know i'm a kevin girl i'm a nick girl whatever and these really important moments crucial moments in their lives that when they see them live it's like holy shit you don't understand how much you mean to me and your music right. is great but they're just freaking out because of what the you know they mean to their lives or maybe later on in their lives when they're older they're reminded of how important they were when they were young, yes. um, which doesn't necessarily to me happens in my experience with, you know, Bjork or with Ruben Blades or whoever. It, they're just part of my life. You know, very mm -hmm. few have like had this impact in my growing up and my, you know, things that I've lived through them uh, or with them. That's more like what soccer players have been in my life. Like when I sure. watch somebody, I'm like, oh, so-and-so is retired. I'm like, dude. You were with you give me so much joy during these times, you know. Um, so that is very unique, and I respect that a lot. And I've never really minimized the the idea of pop. And in, in, it happens a lot. Like and this is a little sort of off the beaten path, but like one of the things that that I I would see a lot. And I quit Facebook many years ago, but a lot of the things, a lot of times, you would see people criticizing pop or like reggaeton or, or pop adjacent music from musicians that were desperate to get work mm -hmm. and were wondering like, well, you know, so-and-so sucks and why am I playing, you know, with a Jonas brother, blah, 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 if they're not real musicians, nonsense, right? right? And then they would ask me for gigs mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. and they or I would see them on a pop gig and I'm like they're not going to last because at some point their manager is going to look through their social media and they're going to see all the negative things that they said. So right. one of the keys for anybody that wants to work in the pop world, aside from learning songs verbatim and respecting the 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 idea of the, you know, how, how uh, Steve Jordan always says that simplicity is not stupidity, um, mm-hmm. you have to understand what that artist means to their fans. And respect right. that it's sacred, and they're, you're not there for anything else but to make it make the 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 the, the this machine continue to work. Yes. Um, and yeah. I love pop music. I respect it. Um, it's not for everybody. I mm-hmm. understand the world. Um, and 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 I've also been lucky that most of the pop things I've done as a has been as a percussion player with like Iggy Azalea or obviously Miley and the Jonas Brothers, um, you you have to understand that what we're doing is providing a service at the same time so that mm-hmm. the person in the audience can enjoy it with the least amount of distractions possible and you can they can continue to have that bond with the artist, obviously depending on the style of music or era that they're, you're living or the type of show. But I think it's really important to respect pop and respect all, all, all other all other genres of course but when you're in that world that you, it's not about us um I, I just think it's some people sort of get in their own way by trying to if they're not criticizing openly a way of right. that criticism to be palpable is by overplaying by rearranging things and by adding stuff that is not there. And it's just like, it, it's a sum of, of respect that I think there needs to be sort of, um, it needs to be this North in a way. Um, and I, I learned, I, I'm not perfect at it and I learn every day and I try to navigate that as much as I can. Um, but yeah. that's one of what was one of the things I would recommend for people, you know, that, that's, that is really, really great advice. And I, I love, I love the, the thought of, of the connection between the fans and the pop stars and, you know, growing up in the eighties and pop music and, and, you know, it was like, so Madonna and Michael Jackson, it was, that was the thing. Yeah. And then of course, being from Boston, new kids on the block, that was, yeah, the, of course. That, those were the guys. Right. Yeah, and yeah. so like, yeah. and I still like to this day, like you, you mentioned, you, even when you grow up, you still have that affinity toward that band and that music. Like, yeah, that was, that was the jam. And it's just, you know, it doesn't go away. It's there. It doesn't go away. And, but I do know people and this is not a diss, but I know people that aren't phased by celebrities in the crowd or they just don't care. Sure. I love that. Like when we were playing, I saw uh, with Miley, I was, my wife was in the crowd and I saw her, I saw Lance Bass from Sync walk next to her and kind of sit, stand next to her. And they were talking and he was like standing in front of the teleprompter. And my wife's like, no, you can't stand there or whatever. And I was like, holy crap. Like, that's Lance Bass. Like, I love Sync. I would <laughs> sing their songs all the time. And I know how much it means to people and friends of mine. And yes. and that is magical to me. Like, when I play with the, with the brothers, we would have all these, like, Drew Brees came and, and Pat Mahomes came and, and I spoke to Lewis Hamilton about like a, a Arsenal soccer a, a, a coach if he was pro or anti the guy and 
I yeah. love all that. I love all that. And the reality is that for other kinds of music to bring me those experiences are very, very, um, it's very hard for that to happen. Sure. It's very Absolutely. hard for me to meet my favorite soccer player, you know, Tom Brady, if I'm playing at a jazz trio in, you know, in, in Salem, Massachusetts, you know. Sure. But if I'm playing at a pop show, you know, and I can Madison Square Garden and they're whatever, you know, the, the probabilities yeah. of that happening are greater. And that's one of the reasons why I love pop so much is to allow me to live this experience adjacent to the music that it's all related to mm -hmm. the artist and it's just cooler uh, and i've 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 experienced it when i've invited people to shows and whereas if i invite them to another show with a big artist they're like oh pff, of course i'll go mm -hmm. um or or a brand or uh you know an endorsement that might not happen if i you know play with whomever and by the way i do have to say that um when we met through Zildjian and 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 you um you sent me symbols for the Jonas Brothers tour that was one of the most amazing days of my life and when i see Kirsten every time i tell her this that when i walk into my room and i see all those z's and i don't you can't see too much but all, all those symbols it's surreal because it's literally the the brand out of all the brands that i you know use and, and I, i'm thankful to to be endorsed by zildjian was the one and my entering to that arena was thanks through you and your belief in me and and um what i was doing with with obviously a huge band at the time and a huge tour um but that allowed me to um feel uh, very confident in myself and and uh it was definitely one of those moments that that uh mean a lot in 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 careers that aren't necessarily like this bucket list thing of like oh i've played with this or i did played this venue it's like wow i just had an email from at zildjian.com you know <laughs> so, so i appreciate that very much you know well, thank you thank you so much for saying that i'm really really happy to have been part of your journey in that of course. way. Oh you my know? God. Are you kidding me? I'm so thankful. And, you know, I would say, you know, also, uh, Chad Brandolini, um, mm -hmm. and back then Dana Spellman, um, yes, Dana. I had no gigs. And then I had this Sharon thing that was maybe once, twice a year. And Dana was like, yeah, man, let's just sign you up. And then they, he put me in touch with, with Chad and, uh, I've used Vader for a very, very, very long time. So, um, that's great i'm I thankful i'm thankful it's all part it all sums you know it's like a lego piece yes. situation so and it's and there's so much like boston connection there too oh yeah dana uh, and gary and all yeah. those guys it, that's just incredible i i loved and you talk about like going to a concert and there's like celebrities in the in the audience and that you know part of being in boston you would i would go to see um i would go to see like journey and wow. Steve Smith and like in the audience, you know, it's, it's me and Chad Brandolini and Dana and, you know, McGee. Yeah. And, McGee, of course. And Gary Sharon. And like, yeah. it's, just, it's like the, the, the core. Insane. Um, I actually, I had the privilege to pay at, play at Fenway park a couple of years ago. Yes. And 
I wore my extreme shirt and that that just felt right. And it was Boston, you know, when, when people talk about the garden, like, Oh, we'll play at the garden. I'm always like, Oh, you mean the TD garden or you, or you know, you got to, make it you know you got to clarify which because yes. my garden is not the garden but the garden is the garden for me you know yes yeah. uh but you, you i don't need to explain it to you because you're from boston you get it um yeah. so yeah boston is means so much um and and you know just like logistic not logistically but as a matter of fact the sharon's nuno uh Sh- mangini Desenso. Yeah. Uh, Zildjian as a company, Vader as a company, that is, you know, like, that's it. That's like uh, amazing. And and I always value my time and um, always value my time in Boston. Yes. And again, not to beat a dead horse, but I'm very thankful for, for you believing in me all those years ago. Absolutely. Absolutely. And next time you come through Boston, we'll have to. We'll have to get together. We'll have to. We'll have to have a beer near Fenway or something. Yes, yes. Something. We'll. Yes, we'll definitely have to link up and. Yes. Um, I can't wait to go back. Yeah, it's. You know, I mean, uh, obviously my my hometown, but I, it's hard for me to imagine uh, living anywhere else. It's a it's a great place. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. Of course. I, um, I, I know what you mean. I want to make sure that we don't forget to let people know where to find you. So yes. where where can they follow you? And then also let us know what's going on this year with you. Okay, really quickly. And I'm so verbose and I talk so much. It's like insane. You're going to have to edit half of this no. podcast. No. Um, uh, as far as what's next for me this year, um, I really have no idea. There's no gigs on site. I have something late February at the Baked Potato with some uh, heavy hitters here in L.A., um, which I'm, it's always one of my favorite gigs with Randy Cook on drums. Oh, nice. Very yeah. good. Randy Cook and uh, Derek Frank, bass player. He's the leader of the of the band. He plays with Shania Twain, Gwen Stefani, and this uh, Ty Bailey on keys. We play with Katy Perry for years, and he's playing with Josh Stone now, and Josh Ray Gooch, who played with um, a million people, but uh, Shania Twain recently. Um, I write my own music, mm-hmm. and I it's all based around the handpan, and mm-hmm. the instrument, the dome-looking thing. So I'm a handpan player, and I've been composing music for the past few years, and I've released uh, three or four EPs, and I'm about to release a, a new one. So that should be out hopefully by the beginning of February, if not a little bit earlier. I'm, we're just kind of in the mixing process at the moment. And I'm really excited about that because I want to explore, you know, syncing possibilities and, and sort of more passive income um, from that world. So mm-hmm. I'm really, really excited about that. Um, and hopefully, you know, Miley gets busy or other artists that I might be working with um, or that might need percussion or drums. I also have, um, I started creating uh, courses on Udemy and I have a shaker course, an introduction to shakers course, uh, which is available on Udemy. And um, if anybody's interested, they can reach me directly and I can give them a discount code. And I'm going to do the same for tambourines, right? So it's basically courses for people, maybe Mm non-drummers that, um, or drummers that don't understand 
shakers all, all that well, but they get asked to play in a recording or producers, background singers that are thrown a, a shaker or a tambourine. They're like, yeah, play. And they, you know, it swings when they're supposed to be playing straight or they don't, you know, it's not consistent. I break it down and, and it's very user friendly, the whole method. And it, it, so I'm excited about that as well. And people can find me on social media. That's the easiest way. Um, at Demian Ariaga on Twitter. Um, follow with caution because I post a lot of political views. <laughs> um, definitely Instagram. Mm -hmm. And if you, for anybody that's interested in lessons of all kinds, drums, percussion, bass, um, handpan, uh, you can contact me at lessonswithdemian at gmail.com. Um, and yeah, just always up for, for, oh, I have a, a, a podcast called the Music Mentor Podcast and I'm about to relaunch. Um, I have over 250 episodes. They're all about 10 minutes long and I try to talk about every imaginable topic in music and things that I've experienced anecdotes. Sometimes I do interviews. Um, so it's a bunch of stuff. And if you don't want anything to do with music, but you happen to be a women's soccer fan, I have a podcast called that Arsenal women podcast, which is exclusively about Arsenal women. Um, my biggest passion and the thing that gives me the most joy in life. And I'm uh, very Again, passionate about that. So if you want to follow that for whatever reason, do it. Um, and yeah, that's enough self-promotion, Sarah. No, this, that's great. Yeah. That's great. And I yeah. will link all of those things in the podcast show notes and in the YouTube description too. Thank so you. everyone can just click on it and easily you. follow you and find you. Yes, um, thank you. Yes, absolutely. And thank you so much for being my guest today. It means a lot that you took the time and... Again, I hope I get to see you in person again really soon. Thank you. It, again, it means so much to be included in the same breath with, you know, not, I mean, I'm in the same database of drummers that have not only had a huge impact in my life, but, you know, the Thomas Langs of the world and uh, JD Beck and who I love as a person and a drummer. I, I met him one time. I gave him a quick lesson on a whole lot of love. Um, many, many years ago. I doubt he remembers, but um, stellar human being, that that, that kid. Um, and, you know, I, again, it's just a privilege. I have no idea what I've done to merit this, and, and I appreciate you kindly, and it means a lot. And I know my parents are so happy that I get to do this so they can watch from Venezuela and my sister, and, um, you know, they're excited whenever there's content out there. So it makes Aww. us feel closer to each other. So thank you. Absolutely. I love that so much. Shout out to your family. Yes. And, uh, yeah, that's amazing. Um, awesome, Demi. And thank you so, so much again. And we will connect again really soon. Yes. Thank you so much. All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you for tuning in today. Join us each Tuesday for new episodes of Sarah Hagen Backstage.